Hello and welcome to Seeing Red, a true crime podcast. I'm Mark. And I'm Bethan and thank you for joining us once again. This week my case is one that I have never been able to shake since the first time I heard about it and a little while back I read a book on the case and there was just so much to it that I just hadn't realised before and I think it's one that you will become absolutely fascinated by if you haven't already heard of it Mark for reasons that will shortly become apparent. Oh, I'm intrigued. Mm -hmm. I can't resist giving away a bit of it, actually. So it reminds me a lot of your favourite film that you always go on about. Um, I'm. Oh, if it's if it's a film that I go on about on the show, it's got to be Eden Lake. It is. Am I right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh God. I mean that we've I've talked about it loads, haven't I? On the show because we've you know it's like it's a film basically. I won't go into loads of detail again. Uh, but a film about a couple that are on honeymoon and they're vacationing at a lake and they basically get brutalised by a bunch of kids and kind of uh, violently beaten up and killed and stuff. Um, And I guess a lot of what we cover reminds me of it because we cover mindless violence, don't we? Um, And they've done nothing wrong. They've done nothing, not, not that, you know, many victims do, but They'd done absolutely nothing to warrant the abuse they got and, you know, they paid a awful cost for it. But yeah, it's just a very disturbing film. So I'm intrigued if this case reminds you of that. I feel like you won't know anything about this case either, because I think if you knew anything about it, you would be mentioning it right now as well. So I'm really okay. hoping I'll be able to kind of shock you along with I'm our listeners. I'm so excited for this. Honestly, Mark, it is a roller coaster. Because I think I said to you, didn't I, a couple of days ago, I said, oh, what are you covering? And you said, I'm Mm going to keep it as a surprise until the day. Um, So I've been waiting with bated breath. And you literally didn't even send the script through until (laughs) two minutes ago. Exactly. Uh, Otherwise, I'd have looked at it. So so I still don't know what it is. But yeah, I'm intrigued. Mm -hmm. So before we begin, we would like to say a huge thank you to our newest Patreon supporters. So a huge thank you to... Kate Barlow, Catherine Spencer, Binky G and Nadia. Thank you again so much, guys. It really means the world to us. So thank you. Um, If you don't currently support us on Patreon, but you would like to throw a little bit of cash our way to keep the show alive, it makes a huge difference to us. Uh, You can support us for as little as $3 a month from wherever you listen to the show. Uh, You don't have to just be in America just because it's in US dollars. Uh, So anybody can sign up at patreon.com slash seeingredpodcast. And we've got loads of exciting stuff over there. I say it all the time, but we really do. Uh, We've got Q&A sessions with me and Bethan. We've got bonus episodes. We've got competitions that we do quarterly. We've got videos. Videos, all sorts of shit. so much stuff. Uh, It's very much a private space for us, isn't it, Bethan? Us and our super fans. Oh, it is. No, it is. It's it really is. And there's the Facebook group as well. I can't remember if you mentioned that. So lots of bits and pieces. But I just want to say, having said all of that, uh, we know that not everybody can necessarily afford to support us in that way right now. And that is absolutely fine. We will continue to release episodes for free. And we appreciate the support that we get in lots of other ways from people, whether that's through social media people telling their friends about the show it's not all about patreon but i can't deny that it does make a huge difference to us and it does mean that we can continue with the show yeah something um kind of to echo what you just said though the support that we get in other ways as well um quite often on 
um, like true crime pages on Facebook or Instagram pages, people will recommend us as a show that they listen to. So if you're listening right now and you've ever done that, and um, quite often I'll spot people saying it and I'll be like, thanks for including us. Thank you. Because just that word of mouth is huge. It makes a big difference. So we're very grateful. Yeah. Well, enough of the gushing and gratitude. And begging. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so... As with the previous few episodes, this is one that's probably going to stick with you and it may make you check over your shoulder when you are next home alone. I'm going to have to look for something a lot more lighthearted for my next episode. There is a lot of information to be able to share with you about this case, so it's going to be released in two parts and I am going to be a total meanie and do it over two weeks. Please don't hate me too much. And honestly, if you don't know this case, I would implore you, don't Google it in the time between episodes I really want to try and see what your kind of reaction is to this just from telling you the story Mark. Are you going to leave us in suspense then sort of Mm -hmm. at the end of part one? Okay cool. Um, As always you can find us on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. We're also on YouTube as we said we're on Patreon too. Uh, So please do let us know your thoughts on today's case. I am taking you firstly back to the end of 1976 to Leicester Prison, where a prisoner on remand was working in the kitchen. William, or Billy, Hughes was working in the kitchen when a nine-inch knife went missing. The catering officer who noticed that it was missing raised an alarm, and the prison security department were notified. There had been a few inmates working in the kitchen at the time, and so their cells were searched along with the remaining cells, the kitchen, and even the skips outside that were full of rotting food waste. Hughes was out on escort to court when the knife was found to be missing, so the team were telephoned and told to search and question him, which they did in the courthouse cell. The knife was not found, and this seemed to be the end of it. Whilst the catering officer who had first raised the alarm did try his best to keep the theft a priority, it seems to have been ignored in the most part. A lot of the staff had no idea a knife had even gone missing, and there was just one entry in the prison records that read, Knife reported missing in the kitchen. Extensive search made of kitchen and surrounding areas, but to no avail. There were no records kept of the searches made, and the way that they had searched Billy Hughes was just to pat him down. If they had done a proper strip search, perhaps they could have stopped the terror of what was to come in January of the following year, 1977. So let me tell you a little bit about Billy Hughes. He was born on the 8th of August 1946 as William Thomas Hughes, and it really feels as though his future was kind of painted from the very beginning. His life of crime began as a teenager, and he left school at 15 after a childhood spent moving around due to his father being in the forces. The family had finally settled in Lancashire. Billy was a small boy and he was nicknamed Titch at school and so to try and prove himself he would get into fights. He was incredibly competitive as well. Billy's criminal history began when he was caught stealing from unattended cars, he would also steal from his employers, he'd break into shops and he spent a lot of time at institutions, probation, hostels, borstal. His dad did try and help his wayward son, getting him a job in the hopes of a full-time wage kind of settling him down and not making him, you know, making him not want to go and commit crimes, but this just didn't work. Billy just didn't want to stop his life of crime, really, and he had no remorse. He absconded from the hostels and the facilities often, he would fight and swear, he got numerous disciplinaries, and he even refused at one point to promise he would try and avoid returning to a life of crime. So I guess you can't really fault his honesty there. 
I was just thinking it reminded reminded me of you and your job interview actually uh, when you came to work for me. Oh, in what way? <laughs> I'm a bit worried. Uh, just you know, swearing, getting into fights, numerous disciplinaries. <laughs> Refusing you were to actually being to, serious. No, refusing to promise <laughs> that you'd try and avoid uh, returning to a life of crime. Yeah, you know, I it's mean, ringing a is, lot of bells. I mean, I'm not surprised you employed me. Exactly. Yeah, <laughs> could not. But there was more to Billy Hughes than just being a criminal um, for the sake of crime. He also had some really serious mental health issues, and they were not properly picked up on or followed up on. At one of his trials, he took out a razor blade and cut himself on the neck and the wrist in the dock. He needed five stitches in his neck, but this was just seen as self-harm and hysterical behaviour and nothing happened to kind of support him. And that really was the norm back then, because I'm guessing that would have been maybe in the 70s and mental health just wasn't understood in the same way that it is now. So when you've said that, you know, those uh, mental health issues weren't taken seriously or followed up on, I'm not surprised because I don't really think they were at the time, which is just such a shame because had someone like him received the right help, he wouldn't necessarily have gone on to waste his adult life through crime. Completely agree. So we're now going to head to January 1977, so Wednesday the 12th of January. And Billy Hughes was still in possession of the kitchen knife that he had stolen that previous month that had kind of been forgotten about. He had kept it hidden deep inside his mattress between the springs, far enough in that only his small hands could reach it, and it wasn't found by any prison officers or any of their searches. He wrapped it, he hid it inside his pants, and then he put on his trousers. He was due in court, so he was wearing his only smart suit that he owned, which was a light blue pinstripe. He also wore a floral shirt and a white silk waistcoat, which sounded so 70s. This It just sounds fucking amazing, that outfit. Mm-hmm. A light blue pinstripe suit, floral shirt and a white silk waistcoat. Bloody hell. Yeah. That's cool as fuck. Inside his pants was this massive kitchen knife. Not cool. He was kind of counting on the guards just doing a very basic search of him on the way out because he knew often the staff were quite cautious about frisking too much because they could risk a sexual assault accusation. Um, But the staff also weren't too worried about Billy because he'd never really been a cause for concern. He'd been on his best behaviour whilst he was in prison and so he hadn't given anyone cause for alarm. This underestimation of Billy and the categorisation of him as a prisoner were major errors on the prison staff's part. The prison officer in charge of transporting Billy to court, Don Sprintle, had been on the job for 14 years. He knew the rules and regulations around transporting prisoners and he knew what he was doing. But when he asked for the closet chain for the handcuffs, he was told that they were out of them. So he didn't actually have this to transport his prisoner, which is something he should have had. And that's the kind of chain that means you can um, keep them chained to you whilst, for example, they go to the loo. Oh, so it's kind of like a long chain? Yeah. so Like it, a dog lead almost? Kind of like that, yeah, exactly. So this would mean that he would be handcuffed to the staff member, but quite close quarters all the time. So he and Ken Simmons, who was in his third year working at the prison, took their prisoner out into the freezing sleet and to a waiting taxi. At the time, the weather was absolutely shocking. It was one of the worst storms that the UK had been battered by in over 15 years. The cold, the snow and the ice had caused loads of issues with the prison buses that were usually used to ferry prisoners back and forth. So the taxi had been ordered instead. But the driver, David Reynolds, had done seven of these types of trips before and he also wasn't too worried. 
He turned off his radio, as asked by one of the prison officers, and he followed their orders about ensuring he stuck to the planned route and not engaging in conversation with the prisoner. They set off and all seemed quite routine, but the prison officers, Don and Ken, and poor taxi driver David had no idea that Billy had the knife hidden in his pants and was simply biding his time. Billy was excited for his opportunity to get his revenge on his ex-girlfriend, Tess. That morning he had rung her, but instead of agreeing to put in a good word for him at court, Tess had hung up on him after telling him again that they were over. She had been shaken that he'd even managed to find her at her new address, which he admitted he'd found thanks to directory inquiries, and she was terrified at the thought of him being out and tracking her down. Couldn't she have, like, gone ex-directory? If she's got a maniac ex on, you know, in prison and to be fair, trying to, to get her a hold of her. To be honest, I think this was the first time that he tried to get hold of her mm. um, since he'd gone into prison, and I don't think she quite knew what he was thinking. Fair enough. Yeah. Yeah. She had told him to just do your time, and she reiterated that they were finished. And Billy was fuming. When the pair first met, Billy had been generous, charming, and had flirted outrageously with Tess before going back to her place after their first date. Billy treated her to a whirlwind of dates, walks in the park, pubs, clubs, cinema trips, and meals out, and he was lovely, until she realised that he had a switch that was quite easily flicked, especially after a drink or two. She soon learned to adjust her behaviour and be careful about who she spoke to, But the worries she had about his jealousy weren't enough to put her off him kind of entirely. And when she found out he'd been in prison, she kind of shrugged it off. Then she found out he was married, although he told her it was just a technicality and that he was due to divorce his wife and the mother of his child. Tess stuck by her new boyfriend, deciding he was worth this. And hey, who doesn't have a bit of baggage? Of course. I know, just an ex-wife and prison and jealousy issues. (laughs) Yeah. You know, normal. Normal stuff. Yeah. But finally, in August 1976, when they'd been dating about 10 months, an event happened that even Tess with her blinkers on couldn't ignore. Tess, Billy, Tess's brother and a load of mates had been on a night out and Tess had headed home and allowed Billy to stay out with the understanding that one of the guys would keep an eye on him. And I mean, it comes to something when you have to be allowed to stay out and only with a chaperone... She knew that he wasn't the best boyfriend, didn't she? She was obviously worried what he was capable of. Yeah, but I imagine her thoughts were just on cheating more than anything. So Tess headed off, expecting Billy to be looked after by the other lads, but they also headed off quite soon over the course of the night, and by the time the club kicked out at 2.30am, Billy was alone and drunk. In the club, he had tried to chat up a girl, but her boyfriend had come over and interrupted them, telling Billy to go away because she was with him. The pair had probably forgotten about this altercation as they started their walk home in the dark. They had other things on their mind and they snuck into the swimming bath to have sex. But Billy hadn't forgotten. He snuck up, hit the boyfriend with a brick and knocked him out cold. And then Billy dragged the terrified woman into the park where he raped her. I was was literally just thinking, I know what's going to happen here and... That's just awful. Isn't that horrific? That's all, to me, that's almost, you know, obviously it's about control and power, but I almost feel like it's about, there's an element of control that Billy is exerting over this woman's boyfriend by 
by saying, you know, yes, she's your girlfriend, but I can have sex with her and there's nothing you can do about it. I think that's very interesting. Mm Mm-hmm. So the woman afterwards, she kind of ran back to the swimming bath, but she couldn't find her boyfriend. So she just hid in the toilet. She was so upset and terrified and just shocked by the whole thing. And this was where the police found her because the boyfriend had come around and had run off to alert the police. 25 officers were assigned to the case and public appeals were made that featured a description of the attacker. Tess's friends joked to her that it sounded like Billy and everyone laughed, except Tess. Her blood ran cold. She went home and found his shirt from the weekend in the laundry and when she sniffed it she could smell a woman's perfume that just wasn't her perfume and there were grass stains on the elbows too and she was really really worried. When Billy got home she asked if he'd met someone that night because she'd smelt the perfume and he went mental. He grabbed her by the throat and threw her onto the sofa shouting about why didn't she trust him before storming out of the house. So the police found Billy when a local sex worker called them to say that one of her customers that she was with at the time matched the description of the attacker. And so seven police officers also went to the house to arrest him. They found him hiding in an ottoman. And during questioning, Billy said yes, he had been the man to attack the boyfriend, but it was self-defence. And that the woman had actually gone with him to have sex willingly, saying they'd even laid down together and chatted afterwards. Billy was formally charged and taken to the cells. His hearing took place five days after the rape and lasted just two minutes. He confirmed his name, his address and that he understood the charges and then he was remanded to Leicester Prison. During a visit, Tess promised that she would stand by Billy as he begged her and he told her he was innocent and he said he would be using his time on remand to prove his innocence. But they both kind of knew that Tess wasn't going to stand by him and eventually she got a friend to write him a letter that told him she'd moved away. I suppose for Tess, it was an opportunity that she couldn't, um, I don't know, like not seize upon because... Yeah, she couldn't pass that up to get away from him. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, because he's an absolute bastard. And this was the the one of the few chances she would ever have to get away from him and make a clean break. Yeah, and it's almost like she's not having to do the breaking up. He's in prison. It's separate to her. Yeah. So while he was on remand, he was then convicted of an outstanding burglary charge. And so he was then incarcerated for that crime, as well as he was waiting his rape and GBH trial. And then whilst working in the kitchen, he stole that knife. And that was what led to the taxi journey in the snow on the way to court. But I have one other area of Billy's life that I think is really important to discuss here, which I kind of touched upon earlier before we kind of continue this snowy journey to court. A psychiatrist who spoke with Billy in preparation for his trial described the man as remorseful and said he had even wept at the thought of attacking the boyfriend of the couple, but he was absolutely adamant that he hadn't raped the woman and he was convinced that he had smooth-talked her into consensual sex. He was also really worried about the fact that he might do it again in the future. But most worryingly, he admitted that he felt thrill from violence and being the perpetrator of violence. So the psychiatrist saw Billy as an unstable individual who had an almost sadistic determination to punish and humiliate anyone and who had to prove himself at all costs. He saw Billy as a psychopath, although one who did want help and had even asked for it, but he didn't get the help he so badly needed or the support that was recommended by this psychiatrist. Leicester Prison at this point in the 70s was a horrendous place to be incarcerated, not that any of the prisons were particularly nice. There were over 350 prisoners there when the occupation was meant to be 218 
And I think I read that some cells were sleeping three prisoners, but there were only supposed to be two in a cell. Yeah, it just sounds bad, doesn't it? Budget cuts had meant that there were less staff, and then the staff that were there had to work longer hours. And I think quite a lot of the staff were quite new to the job as well. And it was normally, even back in the 70s, for uh, for these kind of Victorian prisons to not have proper working, functioning plumbing and toilets, and um, inmates Jeez, would have to literally yeah. slop out and do their business in a bucket and stuff. It's mm. just grotesque. Yeah. There's a lot to be said around sort of like the whole reform or pun- punishment sort of side of things, isn't there, with, thing- with stories like this? You'd much rather be in prison here in this country than, you know, somewhere where they, don't, they didn't have those reforms. Absolutely. On Billy Hughes's official admission form, the police had warned that he was a prisoner with um, a risk of escape, but he was also a suicide risk and that he was also incredibly violent. So that's kind of three main red flags, really, that they should have seen. Billy also asked for help on arrival, but nothing about all of this was followed up on. And so Billy began to act the part of a run-of-the-mill prisoner, assuring guards that he wouldn't be in any trouble, and his charges were noted as having sexual intercourse with a woman without her consent and a separate grievous bodily harm. So this just doesn't convey how violent and dangerous he was. I mean, having sexual intercourse with a woman without her consent. It's disgusting, isn't it? Yeah, he's been charged with rape, I'm guessing, at this point. So just call a spade a spade. Yeah, like, call it rape. Don't call it that. Like, what the fuck? No, that, to me, that screams 1970s. Oh, my God, yeah. Misogyny. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I don't want to get all too political and stuff. But, yeah, like, women were just treated, even back then, like second-class citizens. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And then Billy was categorised as a Category B prisoner, so one that didn't need the highest security but shouldn't really be given the chance to escape. And really he should have been Category A, someone whose escape would be dangerous for the police and the general public. And someone who you probably shouldn't put in the prison kitchen? Yeah, with knives. Yeah. Yeah. But he wasn't. And the guards transporting him in the taxi to court had no reason to think that he was anything other than a normal prisoner. Somewhere along the motorway, Billy pretended he had a bad belly, and so the prison guards Don Sprintle and Ken Simmons got David Reynolds, the taxi driver, to stop at a service station. When they took Billy inside, they had to uncuff him and allow him to into the stall to use the toilet alone, and it was here that he took the knife out of his pants and put it into his jacket pocket. They got back into the taxi and carried on the journey. As they sped along the motorway, Billy waited. And then finally they exited off the slip road towards Chesterfield and he knew that this was his moment. He plunged the knife repeatedly into Sprintle's neck and then turned his attention to Simmons. David Reynolds continued driving, paralysed with fear, but the car veered across the carriageway and he watched in terror in his mirror at the scene taking place behind him. Billy Hughes yelled for Reynolds to keep driving and he got the keys from Sprintle to unlock his cuffs. He made Sprintle move into the back where he cuffed the two prison officers together and he leapt into the front of the car and used the knife to threaten Reynolds to keep driving. He was trying to find Tess's address but he only had the street name and no map and no kind of knowledge of Chesterfield so he made Reynolds drive around and he was kind of saying to him you should know where you're going you're a taxi driver but the guy was like I don't necessarily know every street in Chesterfield so he just kept on driving round and round trying to spot potentially spot the street the two prisoners officers were bleeding in the back and they were getting weaker and weaker more dazed and more quiet and suddenly Hughes changed tact 
he decided he wasn't going to find Tess and he demanded that the taxi driver head out of the city and towards a rural area. The weather was getting stormier and the roads got worse. Eventually he commanded the car to stop and he made Reynolds pull over at a lay-by where he let him out and told him, run. I think at one point as well, like David Reynolds wanted to kind of help the prison officers but he was threatened with the knife and he was told just get over the fence and get going. So he did. And then he dragged the prison officers out of the car and he dumped them before he sped off in the stolen taxi in the thick snow. So the three were picked up after a frantic five minutes or so by the landlord of a nearby pub who had rushed to call an ambulance and the police and another car stopped and they took them to the hospital after they cut the cuffs off with bolt cutters. So it was all a bit crazy with them three as well. And because it's the 70s, when somebody needed to go phone the police, they had to then drive away to go find a phone. So, yeah, they luckily both prison officers did survive, but it was a really like touch and go sort of time for them. And Billy didn't get too far because within about half an hour, he skidded off the road and crashed the taxi into a wall. The taxi was found about 45 minutes after Billy had made his escape by a beat officer in a patrol car. When the officer found the car, it was still warm, the engine was ticking over, but there was no one to be seen. And he waited as the team descended on the area and sniffer dogs were brought in too. They reported to all patrols to be on the lookout for an escaped, dangerous prisoner, suggesting he may have hijacked or stolen another car. He may have had an accomplice, although this seemed very unlikely. And as there was just moors on either side of the road, the only answer was that Billy must have followed that single road to the village a mile and a half away because nobody would risk trekking in the snow on the wild moors. However, the police had totally messed up their assumption here. Instead of following the roads, instead of getting hold of another vehicle or basically doing any of the things that the police expected of him, Billy had headed across the fields. He had done the one thing that none of the police factored in as an option because they thought only a madman would attempt this in the storm wearing a summery suit. But the police should have remembered Billy was mad. He was mad with rage and hell-bent on revenge. He wasn't making rational plans. He had simply fled the ditched car. With more luck than judgment, Billy finally made it to a road after getting absolutely soaked and exhausted, tripping and falling in the snow, going round in circles at points. He had even crossed a stream at one time, taking off his boots and socks and wading in the water, which was icy cold. His efforts were rewarded when he saw up ahead the road, and he crouched and crept along the roadside, scouting for somewhere to hide, when he noticed a cottage with smoke coming from the chimney and an elderly woman in the kitchen. He grabbed two axes from the garage next to the cottage and snuck into the building. I feel like I know this case now. It's ringing a bell now. That it's cut, yeah, that it's ringing a bell, yeah. It's just so horrible and so chilling. Because, I mean, yeah, to be honest, it's horrible so far. Like, we've covered loads of crime here, and if it's the one I'm thinking of, it gets so much fucking worse. Yeah, it does. So before we go any further, let me introduce you to the family who lived at Pottery Cottage. There were Amy and Arthur Minton, their daughter and son-in-law, Jill and Richard Moran, and 10-year-old Sarah Moran. The Mintons lived in one half of Pottery Cottage and the Morans in the other half, and they had a sliding door that linked the two halves. They were a close family and loved having their own spaces, but being close too. There were also two dogs that lived there, a cat, and there was a rabbit as well. And the cottage was reasonably remote. It was about half an hour from the M1 but there were neighbouring cottages along the lane. 
So the houses and the land that they sat on were kind of all quite separate and not really overlooked. And the cottage itself was a really large building. The garage was to the rear of the property. So the cottage itself is an 18th century pottery, which was converted into three homes. The middle one was empty. The family were at one end and then there were two teachers, the Newmans, who were at the other end. Jill was at work, as was Richard, and Sarah was at school. And the Newmans were away at this time. So it was just that one family, the Morans then, that were... The Mintons and the Morans, because the one cottage that was split in half was for the two families, but they're they're one family because it's grandparents, parents and daughter. Yeah. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, got it. And then there's an empty house, and then the next house along does have two people that live there, but it's empty at this point. So the old lady at the kitchen sink that Billy had spotted was Amy, the grandmother. They never locked their doors. After all, why would they? So Billy was able to sneak in quietly. Amy jumped when she turned and saw this soaking wet, muddy, bloody, snotty man stood in her kitchen. He grabbed her in an arm lock, covered her mouth with a hand and threatened her, don't scream. He made her call through to Arthur, who was listening to the radio in the other room and waited for Arthur to come in. He leapt at the old man and tackled him to the floor. Although he was in his 70s, Arthur fought back hard, but sadly was no match for the wiry young Billy Hughes, who still also had an axe. Arthur was furious and argumentative and demanded Billy leave them alone. Amy was trying to stay on side and she offered him their car. She told him they would get him the keys, but he didn't want to go anywhere just yet. Amy told him to change out of his soaking clothes so that he would be warm and dry. And she also offered him the keys to the neighbour's house to hide at because it was empty. But instead, he cut the electrical cord from the kettle and tied Arthur up and told Amy to make a hot drink and to encourage her husband to shut up, saying if they didn't do anything stupid, he wouldn't hurt them. Amy did her best to keep Billy happy and got him biscuits, tea, put his socks in the tumble dryer. He was fully in control, but the Mintons were okay with keeping him happy, feeling like he was going to leave shortly. But Billy wasn't ready to leave, not yet. Jill rang the house on her lunch break as normal and this had panicked him and so he waited with the couple for Jill's return. When she got home, she was terrified to see this intruder in her home. Billy repeated his threats to do as he said and she wouldn't be hurt and he told her about how he had escaped and attacked two prison officers so the police were after him. He warned her that whilst he hadn't killed them, that was on purpose and he did know how to kill. Jill knew her daughter Sarah would be home soon and later still her husband Richard would be getting home and she became more and more worried. Like her mum and as her dad had finally resigned himself to do she settled in and just did what Billy asked. Billy Hughes's escape was all over the papers and the radio and the local TV reports telling people to lock their doors to stay inside and to be aware that such an incredibly dangerous man was on the loose. The police force searched local farms and their outbuildings and farmers prepped themselves with shotguns nearby and their doors and windows firmly secured. But the police were convinced that Billy would have set off by road and therefore they only searched buildings to the west of where he had crashed the taxi. Apparently the farmers who lived in farms near to Pottery Cottage had been complaining that they hadn't been searched or even approached by the police. And on the roads it was a bit hit and miss as well with the traffic stops so sometimes the vehicle was fully searched Other times they just gave the driver a cursory glance. And the police also had the concerned public phoning in with tips that they needed to follow up on as well. 
Whether these seemed genuine or not, they needed to follow up on everything, so they were stretched. They were trying to track down a fugitive in the wrong direction, in the worst weather England had faced in over a decade. And all the while, Billy Hughes was drinking tea, eating biscuits, and keeping Amy, Arthur and Jill hostage in their own home. And that horrible image is where we are going to finish today's episode, and you can join us next time to find out what happened in Pottery Cottage over the following 55 hours. Oh my god, you really have left us on a cliffhanger. Yep. 55 hours, bloody hell. Yeah, I know. So we've got all of that to come next Wednesday. Next Wednesday. I dread to think what he got up to there. Yeah. So, um, there we go, guys. Join us next week. Bye. Bye. Bye.